Now we're going to read from God's Word. Tonight we're back in the book of Genesis 13. And believe it or not, this is a good passage for Christmas Eve. Genesis 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now, the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. This is God's word. Well, tomorrow is Christmas. And for Christians, Christmas, it it centers around a supreme gift that we've received from God. So Christmas time, for Christians, we're celebrating generosity. Generosity from God. Divine generosity. And so that's one reason why, for us, Christmas involves gifts, for many of us. Did you know that in the Bible, there are many holidays of God's people that did involve giving gifts. It's not just a thing that happens at Christmas. For instance, think of when King David 
celebrated the arrival of the ark coming back into Jerusalem. It says in 2 Samuel 6, David gave gifts to every single person. And, and then you have another example later on in, in, uh, when Israel was celebrating Purim. It was national rescue from genocide. And they were so glad that God had delivered them. They sent gifts to one another. They sent gifts to those who were poor. That was in Esther 9. There was also this other example. It was a form of, of even self-gifting. The annual tithe, the details of it are in Deuteronomy 14. If you lived too far from the temple, too far to make the trip, you were instructed to take your tithe and to cash it in and to spend the money for whatever your heart desires. It was a gift for yourself. It was also a gift for the needy. He's basically saying, go buy yourself a gift. And so Christians also celebrate the gift that we have received. Romans 5, it's called the gift of righteousness. Ephesians 2, the gift we received is described this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so our passage tonight centers on generosity, this, this, the impulse by which we give a gift. And in some ways, this is a perfect Christmas passage because in this count, we, we see a great act of generosity and we also see conflict, strife. But here's what you, you see when you put the two together. You see that generous sacrifice can resolve strife. Generous sacrifice can resolve strife. And in many ways, that is exactly the message of Christmas. So let's see how a generous sacrifice can resolve strife. Three things we'll look at tonight. First of all, we'll see that wealth can cause strife. Wealth can cause strife. Then secondly, we'll see that generosity can remove strife. And then thirdly, we'll see how God's generosity removed strife. So let's start first with how wealth can cause strife. This is in verses one through seven. The text here, we're, we're picking back up with the account of Abram, and what we see is that Abram, he's, he's this el- elderly patriarch of the Jewish people. The nation Israel, it does not yet exist, and Abram, he lives his life as a herdsman. He's nomadic. He wanders around the Middle East with his flocks and his tents and his ranch hands across the Middle East. He's, he's always looking for pasturage for his flocks. And Abram, and, and this is his business, Abram and his migrant business, they go down south, and, and they're, they're in Egypt for a time because there's been crop failure up, up further north. And now the, the famine is over, the crop failure seems to have been alleviated, and they're making their way back up north, back into Canaan, leaving Egypt into Canaan. It's about a 200-mile trip. So, You want to think about it this way. This is what Abram has just been through. They have been through a business recession. The the whole land has been through a business recession. And during that recession, Abram pivoted his business. He moved to a different market in order to stay afloat. And while he was there, the economy revived. And Abram shifts back to what was his original bread and butter business market. He moved back to Canaan. And how did Abram do during the business downturn? 
Did, did, he, did he lose a little bit? Did, did, he, did he lose a lot, but somehow they're still in business? Well, actually, during the market downturn, it says in verse 2, Abram got rich during the recession. He did very well. It says, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Abram is wealthy. Now, not only is Abram wealthy, Abram's nephew, who was with him, Lot, Lot also prospered during that recession. Verse 5, it says, Lot also had flocks and herds and tents. Lot has a a fleet of vehicles. Lot has a, a whole fleet of trucks. He has mobile homes on site. And so you've got a picture of these two wealthy businessmen. You've got a wealthy family enterprise pictured here as we open. Now, does that seem like a, something of like, like a dream come true, to have, to have successful employment, to have sizable assets? And depending on your family culture, maybe business is something you've always imagined. Business would be something that family could do together. And then business success becomes family success. And that's what's happened with Abram and, and his family, with Lot. But what we see here also is that wealth has its warts. Wealth has its warts. How, how do you think of wealth? Maybe you, you have it. How do you think about it? Or you don't have it and you, and you wish you had it. How do you think of wealth? For you, does wealth bring security and comfort and ease? Well, certainly, it, it, it does at some level. Having money means that you don't have to worry about making rent. Having lots of money means, might mean that you can take trips You can purchase new vehicles, but wealth also comes with warts, and and so don't be deceived about that. Wealth can also cause strife, a strife that would not have happened without the wealth. You see this in verses 6 and 7. It says, "Now Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So what's going on? It's saying that Abram and Lot, they've got booming business. They're doing really well as businesses, but now they have business conflict. So say hypothetically, it would be something like this. Abram and Lot, maybe they're sitting on about 100 acres, but their business needs call for 200 acres. And, and they just, they're constrained. They can't spread further in the current location because they're bordered by the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They already, those peoples already have settlements on their borders. And so they're crammed, they're crowded. And the crammed space is causing conflict for them. If the business wasn't doing so well, they wouldn't run into this conflict. But it says there was strife. There was strife between the herdsmen. That means the staff of Abram and the staff of Lot they keep bumping heads into one another. There are arguments, there are tensions, there are, there are disputes. So wealth brings benefits, but wealth also, also brings headaches. More property means you've got more maintenance to deal with. More business means you also need to find and to maintain more employees and more managers. More investments means you've got to be much more concerned now about asset performance and security. And we see also that wealth can also bring tensions to your relationships. Look at verse 8. Abram says, please, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are brethren. When money is involved, when money gets involved, it will test 
your close relationships. For instance, maybe you gave your brother-in-law a loan, but he hasn't paid it back. And it's been a long time, and he never mentions it. And you, you're wondering whether he is ever going to repay you. And, and that adds tension to the relationship, frustration. Maybe you loan your truck to your dad for the weekend. He's doing a project, and he returns it, but there's a, there's a big dent in it that wasn't there, and he doesn't say anything, and the truck was kind of nice. It would, it would cost something to repair it, but there's this tension now because of the wealth, because of the assets. Wealth, wealth can pit love of money against love of the other person. It can, it can bring those two into conflict. The strife that comes with money, it's not limited only to families. Maybe someone does you a favor. There's a benefit, a professional favor, maybe a housing favor. But now, after you, re- you receive this gift, you receive this, this favor, now there's this uneasy, almost unspoken obligation that you have with the person who gave you from, from their generosity. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe they feel like they gave you a gift, and now you need to listen to their advice. You need to listen to their dating advice. You need to listen to their financial advice or their career advice. And so there's this uneasy thing that's introduced when one person has much, and, and it's been introduced into your relationship. But maybe you've got a friendship, and it's, it's not that we're talking about money or business. You've got a friendship, but the friendship is unbalanced. The friendship is, is asymmetric. One person may be of just a position where they've got more. It could be financial, but it could also be social. Maybe you you sense you're much lower than this friend. And it's very hard to navigate the challenges of having more than your friend has. Now, that doesn't mean that you avoid. It doesn't mean you should avoid unbalanced friendships or that you should limit yourself to only friends who are similar to you. But you just be aware that wealth comes with challenges. Challenges to relationships. Be aware that wealth likely comes with a price tag. Wealth won't solve all of your problems, and wealth will likely introduce problems. But look at something notable about Abram and his wealth. Something notable about Abraham, this wealthy man. You see this also about him. Wealth does not weaken his worship. Wealth does not weaken his worship of the Lord God. Verse 4, though Abram prospered financially, Abram is still committed to worshiping God, not gold. He returns, Abram returns to a lifestyle where the worship of God is the anchor. It's at the center of his life. When, when Abram had less, he was diligent in his worship. He devoted himself to the public and the private acts of worshiping God. And when Abram had more, when Abram moved, wealth did not diminish his worship of his God. Verse 18, Abram moves and builds an altar, he offers sacrifice to God, as had already been his habit. Wealth didn't weaken his worship. But this is a question for all of us. How, how about you? When you have only a little, when, you, when you're pinched, when you have little, does it drive you? Does it drive you to come into the house of the Lord and to offer worship to God in the company of his people? Or, or when you have little, do you have this, maybe even unspoken, resentment towards God? Why, why has God not given more? Does worship of God go down in priority when you have little? Are, are you disappointed with God because of the bills? And so you don't come to regularly 
offer praise to him when you have little. But when you're well off, when you're well off, when your professional star is rising, when the barns are full, do you forget God then? Do you continue to bring to God when things are abundant? Are you, are you still giving to God in ministry, giving to the poor? Or has money had this effect on you? Has money moved you further from God? You don't need him so desperately now. Now that the struggle is much smaller. You get distracted with stuff. You get distracted with rewarding yourself from your stuff. And so you find this, you find this strange reality, potentially. As you have more money, you have less time for God. Has that happened? This reveals something about human nature, about, about fallen human nature. It's kind of peculiar. You could call it the paradox of problems and plenty. The paradox of problems and plenty. You, you see this. You see that problems, problems can propel you into God. You've got problems and it just sends you running to God. You're desperate. You, you with your problems, you pray like you've never prayed before. With energy, with, with earnest desire, you're coming to him. An example of this is Job. Job had terrible problems and the problems drove him to prayer, to wrestle with his faith. So the problems can propel you to God. But problems can also push you away from God. The very same problems that Job went through, those same problems drove drove Job's wife further from God. She lost her financial security, she lost her family, and she said, curse God and die. So problems can propel you to God, problems can also push you away from God, but so can plenty, so can wealth, so can abundance. Plenty can propel you towards God. Think of Think of what it says in the, in the Psalms. Praise God for the riches of his mercy and salvation. This poor man called on the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Plenty can be fuel that stokes praise and prayer, but plenty can also push you away from God. Proverbs 30, verse 10. Don't let me have so much that I forget you, Lord. And don't let me be so poor that I steal and profane your name. And so wealth can cause strife. And we can also see this second of all. Generosity can remove strife. Generosity can remove strife. Verses 8 through 13. You've got Abram and Lot's companies colliding with each other. You've got tensions, quarrels that, that are simmering between the two groups. And Abram does not want it to bring damage to his relationship with Lot, his nephew, and so in this case, in this case, their solution is very clear. They must separate. They must separate. It's repeated several times in this passage. Separation, in this case, will keep the relationship healthy. Verse 8, please, he says, let there be no strife between you and me, for we are brethren. Then verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. Verse 11, and they separated from each other. There are times when separation is the path to unity. It sounds weird, it sounds counterintuitive, but in scripture you see this. You see this in business, you see this in ministry, you even can see this at times in marriage. Separation keeps the personal relationships intact in business. So you see it here in Abram and Lot's situation. They must spread out and separate. 
We also see how separation can keep personal relationships intact in ministry. There are a slew, you could make a very beneficial study of this in the New Testament alone when it talks about withdrawing. There are times when you must, for the sake of faithfulness and, and for the health of the body, you must withdraw from certain kinds of people. You see this in places like Acts 15. Paul, Barnabas, they divide from the other apostles. Paul needed to separate because of the command of the Lord in order to minister to the Gentiles, while others were set apart to minister to the Jews. It was almost two separate ministries, but that was how they maintained unity. And this is in the ministry of the church. God, at times, and many times, will call his people to different spheres in the kingdom. Sometimes we'll overlap, but sometimes he places us in separate places, among separate peoples, even in the same region, even in the same presbytery. Separation might be needed in business, it might be needed in ministry, and sometimes separation can even be needed in marriage. Exodus 19, the people are planning to approach the holy presence of God, and God says, be ready, you're going to come to me on the third day, be ready, do not come before, do not come near your wives. He calls for a temporary separation so that they might properly come before the Lord. There's also another curious but very clear place in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, he's speaking to married couples, both of them believers. He says, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time. So he's talking about there's a time when it's agreed on where you need to separate, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is just one example of a time when even in marriage, in order to have better unity, there needs to be some separation before the Lord. In cases where abuse in a relationship or in a situation is a danger, separation is also needed. Think of how David kept a physical distance from Saul and even to some extent a relational distance because Saul had become dangerously harmful and untrustworthy. And so David, with multiple, I think there were three distinct encounters, David had to separate himself from the presence of Saul. And so in this situation with Abram and Lot, they needed separation to keep the peace. And Abram offers, in this situation, in their situation, Abram offers a great act, a gift of generosity in order to remove the strife. It's a generous act. Verse 9, he says to Lot, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will take the left. This is a huge act of generosity from Abram. And he offered it to end the conflict between their herdsmen. He's saying, we need more land. There's, There's open land east of the Jordan River, and there's open land west of the Jordan River. Lot, and here's his gift. Lot, you choose. You choose. You choose the land that you prefer. You get first choice. I'll, I'll get second choice. Now, this is very generous of Abram. It's a gift. Think of the context. Earlier, God had promised the land to the west, the land to the left. He had promised that land to Abram. And it was the land that was promised not only to Abram, but also to Abram's descendants, to his children and his children's children. And Abram says to Lot, in order to remove this conflict, 
I'm going to offer you your choice of land. Even this land which God promised to my children who are to come. So Abram, he doesn't cling to the land as if it were his rightful possession. For the sake of resolving strife, Abram gives Lot the first choice for the sake of resolving strife. Now here's one thing that this tells us. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, there is no loss in generosity. You don't lose when you give generously. Generosity for the believer is always net gain, especially, especially in conflict. There's no loss in generosity. One commentator calls this solving conflict by self-renunciation. Solving conflict by renouncing yourself. Abram gave up his rights and gave up his position in order to keep the peace. He gave up in order to stop the fighting. A generous sacrifice can resolve strife. Now, that's hard. That is hard. When you are at odds with another person, maybe, they, maybe the, the conflict that you're in, it's they are making a mountain out of a molehill. What is the natural resistance that rises up in all of us? To win? I'm going to win. I'm going to push back. I'm going to self-protect. I'm going to dig in and I will not concede. Years ago, I, when I was a, a research assistant in a lab, I came into conflict. I came into conflict with the person who was over me. And the conflict was over something that was incredibly petty. And that's why it was so irritating to me. It was something about how to format the source code. And if I remember correctly, the person who was over me insisted on something about how our electronic documents had to look. It wasn't a big deal, but for me it would create some hassle. And I remember resenting the unreasonableness of the requirement and asking, well, why? Why? Couldn't we just accept both your way and this other way? It would not have affected anything except just to cause me more unnecessary work. But the person would not budge. And the person got heated about it. And so I backed off. But inside, I was so frustrated. I was angry. I was, I was so frustrated that I could have burst into tears in front of him. But I went back, back in my cubicle. I had to deal with my frustration. And I realized that to end that conflict, I was going to need to make the generous sacrifice. We would do it his way, not my way. And my generous sacrifice ended that conflict. Now, you and I will continue to encounter conflict And sometimes, for the sake of righteousness and for the welfare of other people, you should not end the conflict. You should not back down. You need to hold your ground for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the welfare of others. Sometimes you've got to to stay engaged in the conflict and keep it going. But is there? Is there some way in all of that? Is there some way to be generous in the conflict? Is there some generous sacrifice that you could make that might lessen the conflict that might end the conflict. Maybe your mom and dad, they ask you for something. They ask you to do something that drives you up the wall. Maybe it's something like this. Maybe they, 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 they insist that you call them as soon as you arrive and get back home. But you're 42 years old. And so you're thinking, like, 
I'm not a kid. It feels controlling. It feels demanding. It feels like they're still helicoptering me after all these years. But what harm would it do? What harm would it do you to make the generous sacrifice and to do it and just end the conflict? Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Generosity has a way of removing strife. And it works here in this case. Abram's generosity removed the strife. Now, look at how it played out for Lot. We'll just take a little bit of time and look at what happened with Lot on the other side of this conflict. Verse 10, Lot chooses the land that superficially is much better. Genesis 13, verse 10, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord. It was like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Now, we don't have a, a lot of time. We can't dig into this, but just notice this. Lot chooses to his own advantage. He chooses the, the, the land that will be to his best advantage. The land that he selects, the one that's east of Jordan, it's perfect. It's well watered. It's just what you would need for good flocks and for pasturage. And notice this little phrase. It was like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt. It's saying this was like Eden. This land was like the garden of Eden. It was like paradise, God's paradise. And the, and the, the text is throwing this in, and, and there's an indirect warning here. And it's a warning about, about noticing what do you value? What do you value? When you, when you have a, a choice to select something, what is it that you really value? Lot selected the place that reflected his values. He selected the place where his work would prosper. He chose financial and professional advantages. And that was the main way he made this choice. The text, verse 10, notes that the place was like paradise, but it was like paradise until the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's, that's, that's foreshadowing of something that's going to happen to this place. Look at verse 13. But the men of Sodom, the place where Lot chose, the men of Sodom who were there were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So the choice that Lot selected, that was the place to go for material flourishing. That was the place to go for professional flourishing. That was the place to go for financial flourishing. But spiritually, that was not the choice for spiritual flourishing. It was very, very dark. Verse 13, it says, in the Lord's eyes, this place was toxic. And that's with that foreshadowing of Sodom and Gomorrah later to be destroyed. Moving to this place might be great for your career, but it would be terrible for your soul. And in future weeks, we'll see how this plays out. But, but for now, the warning is implicit. Don't judge merely by appearance. Be careful that your values aren't just superficial values. Don't pick a position or a ministry by how it will increase your your prestige, or your treasure. Put your value in what pleases God. Consider what will be good for your soul. How do you select friends? How do you decide about what school you'll go to? How do you select where you're going to work or where you're going to serve? Don't look for the best salary. Don't look for the best benefits package. Look for the place where God is placing his people. Now, if, if any of this aligns with your situation and, and you hear that, generosity can remove strife, that's hard. That's hard. Because when we're in conflict, 
We don't want to make the generous sacrifice. We want to choose self-protection. And, and, and when you've got a choice, we want to choose the choice that seems like the safe choice. We want to choose the choice that will not involve self-sacrifice. We want to pursue self-enrichment over self-giving. And so how, how, do, we, how do we come to these, these choices or these conflicts and choose the generous choice that, that can be good for our souls to make the generous choice that, that can even remove strife? Well, you need to see the gospel. You need to see how in the gospel, God's generosity removed strife. And this is why this is so appropriate for Christmas. In our account, Abram is the leader who removed conflict by taking the rejected land, the land of sacrifice. And in the gospel, Jesus is the leader who removed the conflict by being cast out of paradise and taking the land of sacrifice. You could even say that Jesus is the pick that the builders rejected. Jesus is the rejected land who made family peace. Jesus left his paradise so that we could receive paradise. We chose sin, but Jesus became sin and so joined himself to us. And by his substitution and by his resurrection, Jesus made the people who were exceedingly wicked and sinful to inherit the blessings of God. When you see the generous sacrifice that Jesus made to remove our conflict with God, do you love it? There's something about it that starts a song in you. Do you find grace, that grace, his grace, do you find it sweet? Because when you taste that grace, it will make you, then you will make the generous offer to settle strife. Not because you have to, but because the beauty of Jesus is in it. When you know that God has been generous to you to remove the conflict, that will make you generous in conflict. Now, so much of that, when you're in conflict, so much of this is about trusting that God will give you something of true value. You'll, you'll, you'll suffer loss, but God will give you something of true value. More lasting than money, more precious than having the strong position. And that's what the land of Canaan represented. The land of Canaan, the land of promise. It was a promise of people. It was a promise that there would be a place of your own. It was a promise of prosperity, true prosperity. Wealth, a people, a secure place. Abram and this had only one of the three. And and, and we see that's what's going on. It's, it's, it's just echoing the same theme that plays out over and over in Scripture. At, at the beginning, God put Adam and Eve into a paradise, a place of wealth. And they were the beginning of all human beings, the beginning of the human race. But by our sin, we lost that paradise. We lost the wealth of Eden, and we spend all our days seeking that lost wealth. Isn't that what we're looking for? And, and we not only lost the wealth of Eden, we lost the place, that secure place that was our own, our home in that garden of God. And so isn't that also what we spend all of our days looking for and longing for? Security, a home. And we also lost a people. Because in that garden, when we sinned and fell, death entered the human race. But in the gospel, Jesus reversed all of that and returned all of that. Jesus secured for his people a way back 
a way back to a people, a way back to a wealth, and a way back to this place. And how did he do it? He did it by leaving his heavenly place, leaving his heavenly riches and wealth for poverty, and to be rejected by his own people so that he had no people, all to gain for us an eternal home, an eternal inheritance, and a forever family. That, when you know that you have that, when you know that that's what Jesus Christ has been doing and has accomplished, that's what will make you choose sacrificial generosity over self-protection, over safety. Because a Christian has a secure identity, a secure possession, and a secure place. So we can afford to give away and to give up all that's ultimately perishable. Have you, on this Christmas, have you received the great gift with God? Have you received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, you have given to us. You've given to us in grace. And you've given us something secure that makes us free of all the entanglements and the cravings of the flesh and of the world. We thank you for Christ, the gift to us, and everything that comes with him, an imperishable inheritance. We pray, Lord, that he would be great in our sight, even, even tonight as we come to the table. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.